years to get here, right? So, today, as we uh, wrap this up, we're going to look at the end of Luke chapter 24. I would invite you to turn there with me. As we read this text in preparation for digging deeper into it, we're going to be looking at the reality that the king whose word has been faithful in the past can be trusted to rule our present and future. Luke chapter 24, we're going to begin with verse 36. I'll be reading from the later edition of the New International Version. Luke records it this way. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Any doubts rise in your minds? Get to my hands and legs. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about, that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of, the, of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them. He was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Father in heaven, as we open your word, Lord, we can't possibly express. Father, we can't thank you enough for the reality of Jesus Christ, that you loved us so much that you sent your Son to die in our place, to pay for our sins, so that whoever believes in him, whoever places their hope and trust in that sacrifice, today, I ask that you would open our minds, that we might understand the truth, that you would silence in our hearts any distractions around us, that you would protect us from evil, that we might not be deceived, distracted, or afraid. Make your word with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
walked through the book of Luke together, it's been amazing to me how many familiar things, perhaps as we look at them anew, are open to us. When we see it in the context, when we look a little deeper, we look a little more at what's there, we don't find new things. That's a, that's a really dangerous place. We start to have new observations that no one's ever had before. Uh, new interpretations of generally old heresies. And we want to try and away from those things. We want to see what God's Word says. Not what I want it to say, but what does it actually say? So that we read it in context, we understand its purpose, we understand the language, the, the standing, in a natural reading of the text, because God has written His Word for us to know Him. As we get to Luke chapter 24, it's the culmination of this story. In just a moment, I'm going to have you turn, you can actually start, I'm going to have you turn to Luke chapter 1, so we can see the connection. Luke 24 marks, we're going to come back here. But this is not an accident. Not a single word of Scripture is an accident. It didn't just happen to bubble out when someone was exuberantly writing. But every writer of Scripture, every prophet was carried along by the wind of the Spirit. Every single word of the Scripture in the original autograph, we're not talking about translation or you and I put our take on it. But every word of Scripture, as God inspired them to write it, is 100% breathed out by God and useful in daily living. So as we look here at Luke chapter 1, it's interesting. On Wednesday nights, we've been working on context and structure and understanding how to read the Scriptures rightly. And one of the things that we want to do as we're looking to discover the structure of a particular book is, or a particular passage is to look at the beginning and the end and see how we get from the beginning to the end. Bridge is. At the beginning of Luke, starting with verse 1, we'll read the first four verses. It's his introduction. He writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Notice what he says here, right in this first verse. To draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Keep that in mind. Just as they were handed down to us by those by who, those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Notice also, eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, Luke wasn't with them. He had to investigate in order to find the truth for himself so that he could choose to follow Christ. I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, my excellent Theophilus. This, this friend to whom he is writing, but how fitting and appropriate that God has, has him write to a friend whose name means lover of God, as he likewise writes to all of us. I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Why is Luke writing? He's writing to establish a foundation, to establish the credibility and the accuracy of what has been passed on to them from the apostles, to give us a foundation for our faith. Two words that we'll see again in just a moment, two concepts, fulfilled and witnessed. Turn back to Luke 24, the passage that we just looked at. Go all the way to the end. Well, when I say all the way to the end, let's go to verse 46. Notice what Jesus says. This is what, we, what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are, what does it say there? Are you sure? I'm, I'm not sure I can read that right. Tell me again. What does it say there? Witnesses, that's right. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been told to power from on high. He starts with, this is what is written. 
This has been a focus of chapter 24. Before we even get to this particular section, throughout this chapter, there's an emphasis on the fact that Jesus told them in advance what was going to happen. It was written in the prophets what was going to happen. There was no question. It wasn't a surprise. There wasn't some shift. Oh, God's got to call an audible because now they've crucified the Messiah. None of that. Prophesied from the beginning because it was planned by the heart and mind of God from before creation began. Fulfilled. God's word always, always is and will be fulfilled. Every prophecy of Scripture that has not yet been fulfilled is waiting for a future time. We'll see that as we go through this Advent season coming up. We'll be looking at prophecies that have that we often associate with Christmas, but much of them, or much of these prophecies, many of these prophecies, there's a word I don't actually refer to his first advent, but to his second advent when he returns. Likewise, we see throughout the scriptures prophecies that have a short-term picture, a near fulfillment, a partial fulfillment, and a long-term fulfillment. Suffering, the death, the resurrection of Messiah had been prophesied from the beginning. And here we see now, in the completion of the book, Jesus telling them, it's complete. Now there's more to come, but this segment, this portion, is completed. The work that Jesus came to do in his first advent has come to a close. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for us. Remember in chapter 19, verse 10, it says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He had spread the word, he had called people to repentance, and now he had died on the cross to save us. He rose from the grave. And he made himself available. He went around and appeared to those who were there so that he had eyewitnesses who could portray this truth convey it to those who were not able to be eyewitnesses. Interestingly, in John 17, his high priestly prayer, Jesus prays for the disciples who are there, but also in one of the only times in Scripture, in fact, the only time I can think of in Scripture, where he actually mentions you and me, he prays in John 17, not only for those disciples, but for all who will believe because of their ministry. As they tell the truth, as they share as witnesses, you and I find ourselves in this privileged place of being able to see through their eyes so that we can believe what we were not able to witness ourselves. That's why we wrote the book. So that we could know certainty of what we've been taught. He bookends it with this idea that God said it and then God did it and now he's telling you about what he did. And those who are witnesses of it have the privilege and responsibility of bearing with, bearing testimony, sharing that with all the others. As we walk through this today, we're going to see, uh, we're going to see some things that I think are, are practical and useful for us. But before we do that, we need to understand what idea There's a couple of things that we see here as we walk through it. Uh, picking up in verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. First off, John mentions that they're behind locked doors. Right? In John 20, he says, as Jesus appears to them, they're locked in a room for fear of the, of the soldiers, for fear of the leadership. So they're hiding out behind closed doors, locked doors, and Jesus suddenly shows up. Now we see in the passage right before this, as he's speaking with the disciples that he met on the road to Emmaus, he's dining with them, and just as he allows them to recognize him, he disappears from before their eyes. He's not a ghost or a spirit, as we just read and as we see in a moment. But there's something different in the resurrected body. We will see that in our own future resurrection, in the perfected form that, that we will have. I don't know all how that is. I'm not going to pretend that I do. But what we do know is that upon 
from this resurrection, when we are fully spiritually and physically alive, somehow the rules Jesus goes in the midst of death. And he says, his first words that we have recorded here are, peace be with you. Jesus wants them to know and experience peace. Shalom. But they don't. They're a lot like us. He says, peace be with you, and notice their reaction. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Well, it can't be Jesus, because he's dead. Forget the fact that he's been telling us over and over and over and over again that he's going to die and he's going to be resurrected. Forget the fact that we should have seen the Old Testament prophets, but nobody taught us that. We read the scriptures, but nobody expounded them in a way that helped us to understand. But now, he's standing in front of us. Must be a ghost. Right, that's what Scooby is. How often are we like that? Jesus says peace, but we're startled and frightened. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you doubt driving your mind? I would love to know the, the expression on his face when he said I would, I would love to know the tone. Would be smirking, chuckling. That's what my dad would do. My dad would be issuing this question. <laughs> so what's the problem? Jesus says, what, what's troubling you? Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and feet. And myself, just like I told you. Touch me and see. Didn't shy away from his personal interaction. They had the opportunity to touch him and see. The ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. You can see that I do. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. So they're able to, just, just as Thomas, we see Thomas uh, in this situation in John, he, he has some doubts, just like the rest of us. We put it on Thomas, but it's really everybody. He just doesn't get to see him until later. And Jesus says, look, sorry, don't you remember? Here's where the nails were. Here's where the spear was. Because of joy and amazement, you, you realize sometimes you can not believe because you're too excited. They're thinking, this is true. That could be true. Have you ever felt that way? This is a great deal. Sometimes we respond to the gospel that way. This is a great thing if it's true. If I can be forgiven for all my sins, my wiped clean, and I can have eternal life that I don't have to earn, I don't have to try and, and be all religious and work my way through it, but God acts about me. He does work in me, and He does the work through me, and He did the work already for me. what I said, 
It's what I did. Now I'm going to tell you again. Here's how it is. Everything is a failure. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. All the scriptures pointing to Christ. The law was just a shadow of the good things to come, not the things themselves. Just 45 minutes opened their minds so they could understand the Expresses the heart and will of God, written by men of God, so that the people of God can become more like the Son of God. But we cannot understand this supernatural book without a supernatural ability. This is why extremely intelligent people, much, much smarter than I, don't get it. Because it's not a matter of intellect. grace of God that allows us to see what our hardened hearts cannot see. Romans chapter 8, we're told that the sinful heart, the sinful mind, the mind of the sinful person doesn't submit to God. can't submit to God. It's actually hostile to God. Now we may not think of that about our unsaved friends or even ourselves before we come to Christ. But the reality is, our hearts, our inner person, is hostile, resistant to God. And so the Spirit of God takes hold of us, crushes the stone and casement of our hearts, and allows us to see and understand the Scripture. These who had been walking with Him for three years, still didn't get it. They got it increasingly, but they still didn't get it. Now, just as these two on the road to Emmaus, he opens them up. He has, that sounds kind of like a hippie thing to say over there. I'm going to open your mind. That's not what we're talking about. But the Spirit of God enlightening them, quickening them, giving them life, and the ability to see what God had always had there in the first place. The Word didn't change. There's the Scriptures. They got Jesus lens. They got to see different. They got the right prescription, not the wrong prescription that they should have been He opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. Verse 46 and following, he told them, This is what is written. And then he summarizes what, what has been going on. This is what we've seen throughout the book, and we're seeing it play out here now. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And what he says next is what's going to happen. In fact, Luke, Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, which we'll pick up next year, as we look at this, he is telling them what's going to happen. Messiah will suffer and rise, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning with Jerusalem. But notice as he says this, he's telling them what is yet future. But this is all part of this is what is written. It's prophesied in the Old Testament. It's already done. It's already for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So if they are the witnesses of these things, who do you suppose is going to be doing the preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? They are. But don't forget, these are regular folks. None of these people have a Bible degree. None of these people are seminary trained. They didn't, you know, none of them that he's talking to here are priests and rabbis. They're fishermen, tax collectors, the dregs of society coming along, the prostitutes and thieves that have been following. 
are just blue-collar, regular folks, probably the majority of those following are even illiterate. They have to hear the scriptures read to them. They can't read it for themselves. Some of them can, some of them cannot. They don't have an education that would make them seem smart. something so huge. But notice, verse 49, I am going to send you what my Father has promised. What does that mean? They don't know yet. He's already told them, but they don't understand it yet. They will, and in this moment, perhaps they're beginning to get it. Other Gospels, John in particular says, he breathed on them and told them to receive the Holy Spirit. So, they're, they're beginning to make the connection here as he's already opened their eyes to understand the scriptures. But I'm going to send you what my father has promised. How can I tell him it's promised? Well, because it's already been fulfilled. Everything that has been written is coming to fruition. Everything that Jesus said has happened. So when he says, I'm going to do this, you can bank on it. Because he said he was going to rise from the dead, and here he is. If you can rise from the dead, I'm pretty sure you're going to keep your promise. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised to the holy city until you can close the palace of my high. And when he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, this is where they've been hanging out near the Mount of Olives at the foot of the mountain. While he was blessing them, so they're out in this area, he left them. He blessed them. He lifts up his hands and he speaks a, a, a prayer of blessing over them, and as he is doing it, he ascends. He goes up. That's what ascends means, right? So the ascension of Christ is the going up of Christ. He's lifted up from among them as he's talking to them. John says he's hidden behind a cloud right before their eyes. Taken up to heaven. And they worship sacrifice on our behalf, and now he has ascended to the Father, where he sits down at the right hand of God the Father. This, according to the writer of Hebrews, shows that the work is completed. Everything that can be done, that needs to be done to make us right with God, to take our sins away, has already been done. There is no sacrifice that remains. It's only in he has paid the full price for everyone who will receive it. That price is already paid. When you give a gift at Christmas time or a, at a birthday, you don't give a gift that says, oh, by the way, you still owe 20 bucks on this. The gift is paid for. But the person receiving it still has to receive it, unwrap it, and it's there. Jesus has paid the his ascension shows that he is seated in the heavenlies. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're told that we are seated with him in the heavenlies. And we see the same thing in Colossians, as we see that Jesus is the center of everything, and we are seated with him. We are risen, resurrected with Christ. Therefore, it only makes sense for us to set our hearts, to set our minds on things above so wrapped up in stuff down here where we don't even belong. We're aliens and strangers here. They're immigrants here. We're just traveling here. As we focus where we belong, heavenly things, it changes our perspective. Let's jump into 
So we, we've seen already this core reality. That the king whose word has been faithful in the past can be trusted to rule our present and future. This emphasis in Luke 24 is that God said it, God did it, you can count on it. Because Jesus did what he said he would do, what God had always said he would do, and now has been raised up to heaven, not just raised from the grave so that he would wander the earth or die again or any of those things. He was raised up, seated, finished, but reigning. Right now, presently, Jesus is in heaven reigning. He will one day return to reign literally, presently on the earth. Then we're going to have a lot of fun. Right now, he's reigning from a distance. In fact, if you may remember going through uh, Luke 19 not too long ago, when Jesus gave a parable of a man who goes off to a far country to receive the crown that is his inheritance. It's a man of noble birth, and he leaves his servants behind as he goes off to a distant land, a distant place, where he will be crowned king. And then he will return. Sound familiar at all? Jesus has ascended on high. He is in a distant land now, taking hold of the crown that has always been his. Now he is reigning from a distance. But he will return. And he will, re and he will reign person too. Notice this, as we work through this, this text, there's two new things appear for us. First off, as we look at verse 36, we see when we are least aware of him, Jesus is still with us. When we are least aware of him, Jesus is still with us. They weren't looking for him. They were confused. They were befuddled. I was looking for a chance for him. They were just overwhelmed. When we least, when we are least aware of him, Jesus is still with us. They weren't even thinking about him. They were talking about the amazing things that can happen. Notice this, Jesus is not bound by our expectations, nor limited by our limitations. Not bound by expectations, is not limited by our limitations. They were not yet able to grasp it. That didn't stop it. They were not expecting it. That didn't stop it. Jesus is not trapped by the things that trap us. Notice this also. What failed to recognize or trust him? to recognize or trust him, Jesus is no less real. It was important that he established for them that this was not some apparition. It wasn't an appearance of a spirit, but that Jesus, who physically died, now physically lived. He was with them in their presence. As we see in verses 37 and following, they were startled and frightened couldn't get it yet. They thought they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why are you dousterizing your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's me. It's I myself. Touch me and see. Ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. He backs it up by eating this fish in front of them so that they see it. He was physically real. His resurrected body ascended into heaven and is presently, actually, physically, in some way that I can't even put together, present with God. Now, it's going to become important later for us to recognize Jesus is physically real, physically alive, physically present. We can't be with all of us alive. We talk about it like 
it's easier for us to understand, perhaps. But Christ, the Son, seated in the heavenlies, had to leave. The whole time he was here with them on earth, he was with one group of people in one place. Fail to recognize or trust that he is no less real. You and I go through the same things that they go through. Sometimes he's active in our lives and we don't know it. We don't recognize it. We don't see it. God is doing things. He's active. But we either aren't paying attention or it's been hidden from us. Remember in our last passage, they weren't allowed to recognize it. Sometimes God hides his hand that we can engage rationally before we engage relationally. Sometimes we fail to trust Him. Once they saw Him, they saw it was Him, but they weren't ready to accept that. So they thought it was a goal. And the presence that was to bring them Jesus does not exist in our hearts or minds, nor is he a religious concept. We talk a lot about Jesus living in our hearts. In fact, there's a, an old hymn that I've always loved, but there's one line that troubles me greatly. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way, and my soul is stirred as I sing. He lives. He lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives? He does, but He doesn't. We must have an emotional, spiritual, rational, personal, intimate relationship with Him. Just as a concept in your mind, Jesus does not live because you and I lives independent of our beliefs. Fact is fact, whether I accept it or not. The same is true of the consequences of my choices. I will stand before God, I believe it or not. Jesus doesn't merely, I should perhaps have put in there, does not merely exist in our hearts or minds, nor is he a religious concept. He is the Lord of all creation, the center of all reality. Notice also, we are confused and overwhelmed. God's plan never wavers. When we are confused and overwhelmed, Overwhelmed, God's plan never wavers. They're freaked out, they're frightened, startled, their their brains are starting to hurt because things are happening fast, right? Jesus has gone slow with them for three years, and now all of a sudden, bang, three days, and everything changes. Their brains hurt. His response, after showing them this in verse 44, is what I told you while I was still with you. His response in verse 46, this is what is written. No matter what happens, no matter how they feel, no matter how you or I feel, God's plan never wavers. With that in mind, Jesus is never confused or overwhelmed. Nor does God's word ever fail. When we're confused and overwhelmed, God's plan never wavers. Jesus, unlike us, is never confused or overwhelmed. Nor does God's plan ever fail at any point. Everything that has been written in God's book is fact, whether it has happened yet or not. All it is is just history written in advance. So when God says it, you can bank on it. When you and I are confused and overwhelmed, God...
God is not caught off guard. He's not surprised. He doesn't have to call an audible. This was the plan from the beginning. When Jesus went through it, it shook them. They didn't know how to handle it. Because their faith, their belief, told them that if God was blessing them, if He was the Messiah, if He was who He said, they should be experiencing victory. They should be experiencing power and joy without any setbacks. Yet, understand what God could possibly be doing. How can any good come out of this? Say amen if you know what I'm talking about. You've been in a situation where you're like, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. But God, what is happening? Nothing good can possibly be happening here because I don't understand it. Let the arrogance of that have dropped the ball somehow because my little brain can't fix it. When I'm confused and overwhelmed, God's granting that favors. Not surprised by your circumstances. What bad thing has happened to you that had God saying, oh, mission is most daunting, the Holy Spirit empowers. When the mission is most daunting, the Holy Spirit empowers us. Jesus gives them this assignment. You're my witness. We're going to see it again in Acts chapter 1. In fact, let's go ahead and turn there now. We'll come back to 24. Jump over the book of John. Acts is right there. We're going to look at chapter 1. Same author, second volume, at a later time. We're going to start with verse 1 and we'll just pick it up. Luke writes, in my former book, Theopolis, I wrote, all of, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Interesting word there, began to do and to teach. He finished up his earthly ministry. All that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. To summarize what we were looking at. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them... Not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me preach about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized and immersed with the Holy Spirit.
bearing witness to the reality of Christ. It becomes very daunting in short order because the persecution is real. As to tell the truth of what they've seen, they don't have to have a lot of training, they don't have to have some great sales pitch, they don't have to convince people, they just have to tell the truth. And as they tell the truth, the world... Sometimes the mission is trying to do it ourselves, to quit trying to rely on our own ability, to quit putting our stock in our own faith, our own ability to trust, you're not good enough. Neither am I. No one is. We're relying on ourselves. We're going to fail. God uses the hardship that comes through the sinfulness that separates us from us from Him. He uses that same hardship Spirit, when He comes to us, He dwells in us. 
influenced by him in this building. This thing will be true. Every good thing and every believer coming to Christ. If you're doing it on your own, if you're relying on your own ability, mark this well now. seems out of control, Christ is still reigning. When the world seems out of control, Christ is still reigning. I was trying to find some better word than reigning. It didn't seem so, I don't know, fishy. But none of them just happened the same way. I wanted to say when the world seems out of control, Christ is still in control. That seems catchy and is in control, but he is in control because he is the king. He is the sovereign authority of all things. I won't have you turn there, but man, another part of your, don't forget to read Hebrews. When you read Hebrews, also read Colossians 1, verse 15. It speaks of the supremacy of Christ in all things. He is the ruler. Why is he in control? Because he's the boss. He made it all. Everything created was created through Christ. Everything created was created for Christ. Everything created holds together in Christ. Apart from Christ, there is no anything. The world seems out of control. Christ is still reigning. When he ascended, he took his seat on the throne. Jesus is not passive in our world, nor is he ever not in control. Jesus is not passive. What you are going through, Jesus is here with you. Where was Christ in that situation? Where was Christ in that abuse? Where was Christ when my parents failed me or abandoned me? Where was Christ when the rug got ripped out from under me? when we are strong enough to handle it ourselves, is glorified when it drives us to his throne. He's not passive in our world, and he's yet not there. We see here, as he ascends, that when we finally get it, starting in verse 50. We're going to focus on 52. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Now, before we read verse 52, he was taken from them once before. He was taken from them at the cross. And he was buried. Do you remember their response? It's a lot like our response. We were devastated. Jesus isn't with us anymore. They were devastated. They became cowards. They 
were filled with doubt. They hid. Looking from them again, but the response is so much different. They've seen him overcome death. Now the scriptures have been opened to them, and they understand what happened in the sacrifice. They understand that this was all prophesied and is now fulfilled. And because they understand the scriptures, and because they have walked with Christ, their response in verse 52 is dramatically different. Then, they worshipped He left them and was taken up into heaven. Then, they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem, not with confusion, not with despair, but with great joy. They will not remain at the temple. See, from this moment on, they get it. And when they get it, they had already left, to some extent, their previous lives. But now, now, he's been taken from them. filled with great joy. Their lives are never going to change. Why? The priorities have shifted. They're no longer looking at the world around them. now on heavenly things. And it's going to develop in them. It's going to take growth just as it does with us. But they are now going to be filled with the Holy Spirit that will give them the power. Now they don't care so much about the things they cared about before. that anymore. You know what they're worried about? second place in our life. If Jesus is part of your life, if God is your co-pilot, then you have no part of him. Period. You're either all in, struggling and fumbling though we may be, you either are hanging your hat on him or you're not. Now that doesn't mean that we never sin, we never falter, we never lose faith for moments, but that doesn't define us anymore. That's not the course of our direction. We'll see that with these same disciples throughout the book of Acts. They'll have soaring highs and resounding lows. We see throughout the New Testament letters that the church will struggle and still be victorious. Paul says in Philippians, while he's chained up in jail, whether it's high or it's low, whether it's good or it's bad, for better or worse, for richer or poor. It's a relief that they have now in Christ. Speak to us. God will not, Jesus will not accept us. No will he allow us to be passive in our world. Now, these guys are still to pay the bills, aren't they? Still got to eat. So it means you got to work. In fact, Paul says, if a man will not eat, So they're not quitting their jobs necessarily. 
but they don't any longer care about their jobs for the sake of their jobs. They want to be excellent. This is what has historically since the Reformation been called the Protestant work ethic. There's a shift in theology in the 16th century. As the gospel was rediscovered, Luther in particular saw this and elevated marriage, doing dishes, sweeping floors, doing your job to a sacred thing. So that whether you are working with a plow or whether you are, you know, at the church preaching, it's all sacred when it's done for Christ. So when we get it and nothing else matters, really, that changes everything, doesn't it? Notice this, when Jesus becomes my everything, then everything becomes a Jesus thing. Jesus becomes my everything, then everything becomes a Jesus thing. So that whatever I'm doing, I can do it all, as Paul wrote in Colossians 2, 14, as if working for God, not for human actions. Whatever I do, he said in the same book, same chapter, a couple of verses earlier, verse 17, whatever I do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you get up in the morning, and you make your bed, and you make your breakfast, and take kids to school, when you're doing your homework, ready for that test, or you're cashing your paycheck and talking to the lady at the bank, when you're pumping your gas or ordering your food at McDonald's, whatever it is that you're doing, you can now do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for His glory. With every ounce of your effort, with the very best that you have to offer, because Christ's followers represent Christ in everything we do. Therefore, we should be the most we could possibly be. You should be the best employer, employee your boss can have. You should be the best employer your, your uh, employees have ever worked for. If you're making a meal, it should be the very best you can. Whatever we do. Becomes a Jesus thing when He becomes our everything. The fact is, Jesus already reigns in reality as King over everything. The question we have to ask ourselves will I willingly submit to Him as my King? He already. I will one day submit to him as my judge. He can be my king, my beloved sovereign, but he can be the judge who condemns me later. Will I trust him with my daily life? Everything you're going through, will you let go of that and let him take care of it? You will. If not, if I don't do that, I don't experience the freedom and victory that he's already purchased for me. If you are in Christ, Freedom and peace and joy are already yours. But you'll never experience if you don't let go of Christ. It's yours. Will I long for Him above all else? I don't want to trust Him. It's a lot easier to let go of the things that I'm saying.
Sanctified by your word as we become more and 